We'll start off looking at uh, 1 Peter 3.15. Well, you can go to 1 Peter 3.15. I'm going to Acts chapter 17, verse 11. We'll meet somewhere between those two. Um, so the, the title of my lesson, To Be More Fair-Minded. Uh, if you even knew that that was the title of my lesson, it's in the bulletin. Uh, in Acts chapter 17, verse 11, says, These were more fair-minded than those in those the Bereans. Talking about the Bereans were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Uh, and so that's something that you hear me emphasize all the time. I'm not sure if there's a lesson where I don't mention that, uh, the importance of listening to the lessons and then going on and searching the scriptures to make sure that, that those things are so. Uh, but uh, First Peter, did I say First Peter three fifteen? Thank you. And my median age is twenty seven. In case you're wondering, First Peter three fifteen. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. And that's worth some thought right there. That, that is really worth thinking on. Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense. Uh, some some uh, uh, translations say an answer. Give an answer. To everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and with fear. So uh, always be ready to give an answer regarding the hope that is in you and to do that with meekness and with fear. So I like to go back to basics occasionally. You know, when I think about basics, the basics, um, I'm analyzing my audience, I'm looking around, and I'm in a room full of people who are are capable of consuming meat with regard to God's Word and, and not to dwell on fundamental things, but occasionally, irregardless of where you're at in your spiritual walk, uh, it's good to get a refresher and to go back to the basics. Uh, my wife and I became Christians in Abilene, Texas in uh, October and November of 1988, respectively, uh, and we were members of that congregation from October of 1988, a very small congregation at North 10th and Treadway in Abilene. And we were members there uh, and then eventually moved over to Baker Heights on Texas Avenue. And we were there at Baker Heights uh, as very young, new Christians. I still can't figure out how they made me a deacon there at Baker Heights. But, uh, but they put me to work, and I worked. I was working, right, uh, and, uh, which was very good for me. But when we were members at North 10th and Treadway, I've told you before that the preacher took us into a room as just the three of us, the preacher and me and my wife, and then it was a uh, basic principles class. And it was just the three of us. Uh, and he taught us a whole lot real fast. It was a good thing he did. And then when we moved over to Baker Heights, uh, North 10th and Treadway, a much larger congregation, larger than this one even, uh, my wife and I continued we had the wisdom in our 20s to continue to go into classes on the basic principles in addition to that to study those things on our own a lot because we we understood 
that the importance of that foundation. And then uh, we moved up here to Anchorage in August of 1991. Uh, the Air Force sent us here. And uh, uh, for the first few years that we were here, we attended the basic principles class uh, for new converts, for new Christians, uh, which Jesse Kilgore was a teacher of. And just like Floyd Miller and I, I can't remember the name of our teacher at Baker Heights, Maybe it was Robert Dennis, but whoever it was, uh, Jesse continued to teach us basic principles. So saying that only, only to stress the importance of there being a basic principles class for, uh, for new Christians to attend. The trick is keeping old Christians out of there from stirring up trouble. That's the hard part with a basic principles class, right? <laughs> and I'm laughing, but I'm serious. So tonight I want to look at uh, some of those. Uh, so I'm going to give you kind of a basic pattern to put in your head, and then you could fill in the cracks. You could spackle in the cracks because uh, in order for me to teach you everything that Jesse Kilgore taught me, we would be here for several days, right? So we're going to start in Acts chapter 2, or I'm sorry, let's, let's go all the way back to uh, a prophecy in Isaiah chapter 2, and we're going to look at verse 1 and 2 there. In Isaiah... Chapter 2 and beginning with verse 2 says, Now it shall come to pass, and it, it amazes me that it was, this was written uh, hundreds of years before the prophecy was fulfilled, and we're going to look at that too. It's amazing to me. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days, in latter times, that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow to it. Many people shall come and say, come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Dry enough. So we're going to look at, at uh, the fulfillment of this prophecy. Uh, but first, let's go and look at uh, Matthew chapter 16. In Matthew chapter 16, and beginning there with verse 13, it says, When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do, you, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. So it's important to understand here, um, when you look at what our denominational friends, the Catholics, have built on this misinterpretation, uh, look at the Vatican, look at the Catholic Church worldwide, 
and all that that entails. Said here, Jesus told Peter, I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock, that rock is not a reference to Peter. The rock is not a reference to Peter, who in the misinterpretation was, uh, was declared the first pope. And a whole church was built upon that misinterpretation. But when Jesus said, I say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock, the rock is a reference to the, the preceding confession. You are the Christ, in verse 16, the Son of the living God, the confession that, that we made when we were baptized. We hear, believe, repent, we confess this, and we are baptized into Christ. And he goes on to say, you are, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, the rock of that confession. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, talking to Peter still, telling Peter he's going to give to him, Peter, the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Um, and it's important to think about the fact that I can't take the keys out of my pocket and go get into your car or into your house. I hope, because I'm going to take stuff. Keys are very specific. A key is very specific and very unique, and you need the right one to get into something. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Turn with me to Luke chapter 24 now. So here in Luke chapter 24, uh, just before his, uh, what they call the ascension, where Jesus was taken back up, uh, he appears to his disciples one last time, and in verse 44 he says to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which are written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. So to let you know where we're headed here, Jesus is meeting with the disciples right before he goes up for, uh, for the last time, and he says, this is where you're headed. All things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms concerning me. So we're going to see some things get fu fulfilled here pretty soon. And in verse uh, 46, he goes on to say, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sin should be preached in his name to all nations. Hmm. So in Isaiah chapter 2, we were just looking at that where it said, um, that the mountain of the Lord's house in verse 2 there shall be established on the top of the mountain, shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow unto it. So he tells them here back in Luke chapter 24, verse 47, repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. So we'll go back to Isaiah chapter 2, and we see there that it says, Many people should come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. The reason they're going up is because no matter from what direction you approach Jerusalem, you were going up. Uh, when we when we hear somebody's going up, we're, we're thinking of a map in our mind, 
uh, and we we think that's going means going north. But Jerusalem was a high place. It was it was uh, it was uh, higher than the surrounding area. And no matter what direction you approached it from, you were going up to the mountain of the Lord's house. And then down there in verse three, he said, "For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem." So back to Luke chapter 24, and he said, Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you. That sounds important. I'm sending the promise from God to you. But tarry, wait in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. And that takes us to Acts chapter 2. So in Acts chapter 2, we're going to begin with verse 1. Well, actually, let's back up to Acts chapter 1. In Acts chapter 1, starting with verse 4, they're in Jerusalem. And he says, And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You have heard from me, for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And so in chapter 2 of Acts, we find them assembled together in Jerusalem for the day of Pentecost. And it says, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one set upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? Others, mocking, said they are full of new wine. They're just drunk. But Peter, whom back in Matthew chapter 16, we had seen that Jesus said upon that confession that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus told him, uh, blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And then I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. So here we have in verse 14, Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day, but this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. 
And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my maid servants and men servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great an awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, a lot of our denominational friends stop right there. Close up the book and say, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And then perhaps they give the invitation. Uh, And then uh, they've devised ways that are not in the Bible for people to call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. But we're going to keep our Bibles open and continue on. Paul Harvey calls it the rest of the story. In verse 22, men of Israel hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst, as yourselves also know, him, this is, we're in verse 23 now, Him, being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. That's interesting. Jesus was delivered to them by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. You have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. So there's the death of Christ. And we know from other passages that Jesus was entombed. In verse 24, it tells us, whom God raised up, there's the resurrection, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it, for David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, For he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced, and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. In verse 29, he says, Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried. And his tomb is with us to this day. David was not resurrected. The prophet spoke of Jesus, the Christ. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him, that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore... Let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. 
So he, God made Jesus, whom they had crucified, both Lord and Christ. A couple things that are important to note here in verse 36. Um, this is their conviction. It says, uh, told us back over in verse 23, 24, uh, verse 23, it says, Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands. The audience here on the day of Pentecost understood the significance of his use of the word lawless. Lawless hands have crucified and put to death. The conviction, you are convicted you have killed the Son of God. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. So, we understand that He was the Christ. He was the Messiah. He was uh, their deliverer. He was uh, uh, the uh, not necessarily exactly what they expected in a Messiah, but here they're learning that he was indeed the Messiah, uh, although not, not necessarily meeting their expectations for a warlord type of an individual they expected to come and to liberate them and, and uh, hold back their oppressors. But a question for us and a question for them was, is he the Lord of your life? And this word Lord uh, denotes authority. What kind of authority does Jesus have in my life? Does he reign over me? Does he rule my life? Does God rule my life through him? And in verse 37, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to, now that's understandable too, because we all feel responsibility because we know we are responsible for the death of Christ and the type of death that he suffered. Because he died for us, did he not? So we understand our role in that, even though it happened some 2,000 years before we were born. He died for us. He died instead of us for our sins. But these folks were physically present. They were there. They witnessed these things. And in a more literal way, they were responsible for the crucifixion of the Lord and their participation in that. So that's that's how you, you better understand in 37 where it says they were cut to the heart. And hopefully uh, there was a point at which we were really cut to the heart uh, when we made that faithful confession, thou art. The Christ, the Son of the living God. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? So what shall we do? That's kind of a loaded question. It's like uh, I, I see more of a sense of panic in, in, in when I imagine these brethren in their condition. There's more of a sense of panic than, than any preacher I've ever heard has been capable of conveying appropriately. <laughs> the realization that you are in such incredible trouble, 
What have I done? What have I done with my sin? There is so much in that question. Men and brethren, what shall we do? That takes us to 1 John chapter 3 and verse 16 for a little excursion here. Something about the 316s. Uh, John 316, 1 John 316, 2 Timothy 316, Philippians chapter 3 and verse 16. All the 316s have just amazingly powerful messages that apply to our lives. Uh, so it should be easy to remember 1 John 3.16. <clears throat> By this we know love. Well, you got my attention. I, I certainly want to know love. Because he laid down his life for us. That's Jesus. And so how do we respond to that? How do you respond to such an amazing blessing as to have someone lay down their life for you so that you can live in the presence of God for all of eternity. I, you know, how do you pay that back? Well, he answers it, and if you just keep reading, it says, And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. That's our response to it. That's God's expectation for us. So back to Acts chapter 2. Then Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, for the forgiveness of sins, to make sure we understand that correctly, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God will call. And so... In 2 Thessalonians, chapter 1, beginning with verse 7, and we had just pointed out there in Acts chapter 2 where Peter preached to them the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And then in Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, they said, What shall we do? And he said, Repent, every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and be baptized for the remission of your sins. So, he directed them to be baptized and told them how to do it and what it meant. But in Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 7 through 10, it says there, And to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God, and in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be mired among all those who believe. So this is something we want to avoid. It's something that we want our neighbors to avoid. It's something that we want our co-workers to avoid and our friends and the strangers and all those that we read about in First Peter chapter 3, verse 15, which said, always be ready, sanctify the Lord in your heart and always be ready to give an answer concerning the hope that is in us with meekness and with fear. But how do you obey the gospel? Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning with verse 1, it says, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel 
So here's Paul in 1 Corinthians in the letter to the, the, the church in Corinth, declaring to them the gospel, which I preached to you, which also you received, in which you stand, by which also you are saved. Please tell me more. If I don't obey this gospel, I'm looking at everlasting destruction. And now it says it's the gospel in which I stand because, uh, and by which you are also saved. What is it? If you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, for I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve, and then by many more. The death, burial, and resurrection is defined for us here as that gospel. Okay, so how do I obey it? Please, keep talking. Tell me more about the hope that is within you. And please do that with meekness and with fear. So in Romans chapter 6, it's explained very clearly for us. What shall we say then, beginning in verse 1? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? There's the death. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death. There's the burial. That just as Jesus was raised from the dead, there's the resurrection. Death, burial, and resurrection. By the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Do not identify yourself with sin. You're a saint. Doesn't mean you're perfect. It just means that you repent when you do wrong. And you continue to walk in the light. And the blood of Jesus that you made contact with in the watery grave of baptism continues to cleanse your sins when you repent and walk in the light. You know, we need to oppose the worldly way of thinking. We need to read our Bibles enough to not let worldly thinking cloud our judgment. There's so many examples that I could give. Um, We got a bunch of young denominational friends running around saying, We're all sinners. I'm a sinner. You're a sinner. Stand up. Repeat after me. I am a sinner. No. Wrong. Don't do that. That is not your identity. Yes, I've read 1 John chapter 1. Read Romans chapter 8. That is not our identity. We are called to be holy. And the regeneration of the blood of Christ maintains us in a holy condition. Read about his church, his bride in Ephesians chapter 5. The world says that if you consumed too much alcohol 25 years ago, you are 
an alcoholic, present tense. (laughs) My Bible says such were some of you. Don't let worldly thinking cloud your Christian judgment. Get things straight in your head. In verse 5 of Romans 6, he goes on to say, For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. You know, uh, going back to that prophecy in Isaiah chapter uh, 2 and verse 2 and 3, I just thought of something. It's funny how the, the things come together in your head, even while you're in the middle of talking like this. Yeah, Isaiah 2, where he said, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law. Out of Zion shall go forth the law. So how can uh, Acts chapter 2 be a fulfillment of the prophecy, whereas out of, out of Zion shall go forth the law? What are you talking about? Well, if you read Galatians chapter 6 and verse 2, you'll, you'll read about something called the law of Christ. Uh, and also in, uh, first Corinthians chapter nine and, uh, I have trouble with the numbers. Uh, uh, read, uh, first Corinthians nine and 21, where it speaks there about the law of Christ also. Romans six and verse six, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace." Wrap your head around that. And so, there's a question for everyone here. There are two types of people in the audience. There are those who have obeyed this gospel by emulating the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus in the watery grave of baptism as described so so eloquently here in Romans chapter 6. So the question for us, I don't know, there are a lot of questions for us. Uh, I always go back to uh, first, uh, first or Second Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, where it says, Examine yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Do that continuously. Like Mike Sherrill always liked to say, how you doing with that? How you doing with this? So that's a question for us. How you doing with that? with your Christianity, with your faith. And I said there were two types of people in the room. There are two types of people in every room. The other type is those 
who have not obeyed. And the question for them is found in Acts chapter 22, which gives us an account of Paul's conversion, Saul's conversion. In Acts chapter 22, here's Paul who had held the cloaks of those who had stoned Stephen. Uh, Stephen, who we also often identify as a martyr, who when he was stoned, when he was killed, uh, Jesus was standing on the right hand of God. We know that, uh, generally speaking, Jesus was given a seat sitting at the right hand of God. But when Stephen was being stoned, you can see him standing up. And in Acts chapter 22, beginning with verse 6, Now it happened as I journeyed and came near Damascus at about noon. Suddenly a great light from heaven shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. And those who were with me indeed saw the light and were afraid, but they did not hear the voice of him who spoke to me. So I said, What shall I do, Lord? That's that's uh, a question we're seeing a lot here, isn't it? On the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 and verse 37, 38 there, where it says, What shall we do? And the Lord said to me, Arise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all things which are appointed for you to do. And since I could not see for the glory of that light, being led by the hand of those who were with me, I came into Damascus. Then a certain Ananias, a devout man according to the law, having a good testimony with all the Jews who dwelt there, came to me, and he stood and said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that same hour I looked up at him. Then he said, The God of our fathers has chosen you, that you should know his will, and see the just one, and hear the voice of his mouth. For you will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. That rings true for us as well. Sanctify God as Lord in your heart. And always be prepared to give a defense, to give an answer of the hope that is in us with meekness and with fear. And now, why are you waiting? There's the question. There's the question for those in the audience who have not obeyed the gospel. Why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. You know... Oftentimes we feel compelled to give an invitation at the, the, at the end of a lesson. Sometimes we kind of rush through that and we, and we offer that invitation in terms that a person who might respond to it may not understand. That invitation is a very, very important thing. And we see that from, from these scriptures. And so you could kind of say that the whole lesson was an invitation that ended with that all-important question, why tarriest thou from the King James? What are you waiting for? If you haven't obeyed the gospel, if you're not a member of God's family, if you haven't been added to God's church, which is the body of Christ, if you haven't gone down into that watery grave uh, to be buried in death with Christ, to arise and walk in a newness of life, why tarriest thou? 
if you're watching this on the video and you have questions about what all this means, because, you know, we, we often give the steps that we get from Scripture, from all the accounts in the book of Acts. You hear, then you believe what you hear, then you repent, you confess, and you're baptized. Well, you might not be at the fifth one yet. You might be somewhere between the first and the second one. You might need to hear more. Well, if that's the case, we want to study that with you and help you understand these things. But wherever you're at, come forward and make your needs known to us as we stand and sing.